This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. being here. My name is Allison Frost. I'm president of the Domestic and Sexual Violence Project. I want to thank our co-sponsors for helping us put on this event today, uh, Defenders, Law Women's Caucus, the Education and Child Advocacy Society, and the Chicago Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Committee. I um, also have to thank the student government, the UChicago, um, generously helped us uh, fly in one of our speakers. Uh, for the so, uh, to get started, I uh, just want to quickly um, mentioned Title IX. <laughs> That's why we're here. Uh, Title IX essentially boils down to this single sentence. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. You'll notice that sexual assault, sexual misconduct isn't mentioned there. Uh, but in 2011, the office, uh, Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights sent out what's called a Dear Colleague Letter, uh, which is not law, but is, according to a footnote, significant guidance, um, and mentioned a number of things that schools should keep in mind, um, and that the Office of Civil Rights will consider when evaluating whether a school has violated Title IX. One of those things is the standard of evidence that the school uses when there are allegations of sexual misconduct on campus. As you can see, uh, the letter calls for a preponderance standard, which is to say that it is more likely than not that sexual harassment or violence occurred. Quick refresher, burden of proof has to do with who has to prove their case. And the standard of proof has to do with how heavy that burden is. So, you know, from criminal law cases, the, the burden is uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Um, in most civil cases, it's a preponderance standard. Some schools prior to the Dear Colleague letter were using a clear and convincing standard um, somewhere in between there, highly probable or reasonably certain. So the big question today is, is the preponderance standard the right standard? Uh, and we have a fantastic panel here. Professor Pantalupo uh, is here joining us. Did you travel all the way from Florida? Yes. She flew in from Florida. She's the assistant professor of law at Bayer University School of Law. And she believes it is the right standard. Uh, professor Catherine Baker is a university distinguished professor of law at IIT Chicago Kent College of Law. She's also an alumna of our law school. She agrees that it is the right standard. As we move down the line here, we have Professor Hemmel, who is an assistant professor uh, at the University of Chicago Law School, where he teaches tax, administrative law, and sports. Uh, he thinks it isn't the right standard. We'll hear a little bit more about that. Uh, professor Epstein uh, is the James Parker Hall Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Law and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago Law School. He also does not believe it is the right standard. have a handy guide here for you to consult as we, as we um, proceed, but I'd like to turn it over to Professor Buss, who is here to moderate. Thank you so much. Right, thanks. Moderate really means uh, keep time and, if necessary, keep the peace. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not going to spend any time talking. I will be quite uh, strict, ruthless perhaps, in cutting people off in order to ensure that everybody um, has a chance and we have a chance for questions. So sorry if that sounds a little unwelcoming, but it's just because we're so eager to get to the content. Uh, so we get, believe we're beginning with, with you. We have eight minutes. <laughs> got you. All right, um, so I'd like to start by using some of, of my valuable time just to thank the Domestic and Sexual Violence Project and Allison Frost in particular for setting up this event and inviting me to come to it. So I want to start us out today by putting the debate about the appropriate evidentiary standard into the proper context and then explain why the preponderance of the evidence standard is the only appropriate standard for that context. And just to give you a brief set up, sense of my background, I work in the Title IX space. I'm a Title IX lawyer and a legal scholar on Title IX. I've written about 85% of the legal literature on Title IX and, um, and, the, and sexual, how it applies to sexual violence and um, have consulted with the White House Task Force, et cetera. So most of my comments are related to come from that perspective. So um, 
So, okay, so the reason that we're talking about the preponderance of the evidence standard or the standard of evidence at all in college disciplinary proceedings is because of Title IX. And Title IX is, as you heard, the groundbreaking civil rights statute that prohibits sex discrimination in education. Like other civil rights statutes, Title IX considers sexual violence to be a form of sex discrimination. That's because sexual violence has long been recognized as a form of, a, a severe form of sexual harassment, and sexual harassment has likewise long been recognized and throughout the globe as a form of sex discrimination. So to say that sexual violence is a form of sex discrimination is to acknowledge that there are many links between sexual violence and gender inequality. So to, to paraphrase the United Nations Secretary General, sexual violence is both a cause and a consequence of gender inequality. As such a statement from the head of the UN implies, the fact that sexual violence creates and perpetuates gender inequality is understood worldwide and is acknowledged worldwide. Therefore, from its vantage point as a civil rights statute that prohibits unequal treatment of women and gender minorities, Title IX accurately views sexual violence as unequal treatment that violates the victim's civil rights. This view contrasts sharply with how most Americans think of sexual violence, which is as a crime, and only as a crime. As a legal matter, this of course is not an accurate way and has never been an accurate way of thinking about sexual violence because sexual violence has long been a tort as well as a crime. Um, and as a, court, as a tort, it is worth noting that sexual violence was and is dealt with in the civil justice system under a preponderance of the evidence standard of proof. But if one views sexual violence as only a crime, then one cannot address the ways that sexual violence causes and results from inequality. This is because the criminal law is not structured to address inequality, and eliminating inequality is not a goal of the criminal justice system. This means that even if the criminal justice system worked perfectly, and police and prosecutors did their jobs flawlessly 100% of the time, the criminal law cannot and would not address the inequalities of sexual violence. To address the inequalities of sexual violence, we need a, a law that addresses inequality, a civil rights law, and we need Title IX. And Title IX, in turn, needs the preponderance of the evidence standard. Title IX needs the post standard because it is one of the pillars of addressing sexual violence as a matter of inequality. And taking away that pillar is akin to saying that we are not committed to protecting the civil rights of victims. The reason why the post standard is a pillar of the civil rights approach is because it is the most equal standard of proof of the options available. The post standard is usually described as the judgment that the, that the victim's report more likely than not occurred as the victim says that it occurred. So if we compare this standard to the other main competing option, which requires victims to show clear and convincing evidence that their reports are true and accurate, we can see that the preponderance of the evidence standard gives equal presumptions of truth-telling to both parties. But clear and convincing evidence signals skepticism of the victim's account, and only of the victim's account. This can be seen by the plain language of the standards. The CNC standard tells victims that we are so skeptical of the truth of their accounts that we have to be clearly convinced of that truth before we will believe it. The preponderance standard, on the other hand, does not signal that kind of skepticism. The Poe's status as a pillar of the civil rights approach is confirmed by its consistent use across the board in civil rights cases throughout the U.S. legal system. The preponderance standard is the standard required under Title VI, for instance, 
which prohibits race discrimination, including racial harassment, in education. It is also the standard used by employers, by the EEOC, and by courts in Title VII proceedings that deal with employment discrimination. And in light of this consistent use, to adopt a different standard in sexual violence cases would be to suggest that sexual violence is not a matter of gender inequality, which would be patently false, no matter if you spoke to the United Nations, the US Supreme Court, or to social science researchers the world over. Alternatively, if one adopted a different standard in sexual violence cases but still acknowledged that sexual violence is a civil rights violation, one would be treating sexual violence and sexual violence victims differently from other civil rights violations and other civil rights violation victims. This is a form of discrimination in and of itself. It is not only a form of different treatment, but it harkens back to the days when sexual violence was treated differently from other violent crimes and torts, and sexual violence victims, who were and are mainly women and gender minorities, were required to meet higher legal standards than other crime or tort victims, who were mainly men. So finally, and I mention this only as a transition to Professor Baker's remarks, Student sexual violence victims and students accused of sexual violence have equal stakes in the outcome of the proceeding. The equal stakes are in the ability to remain at the college of their choice and to complete their education there. The consequences of being found responsible and in the minority of cases expelled for committing sexual violence are certainly serious. And, you know, and, and the disciplinary decision that must be made in order to uh, reach that conclusion or that sanction must be made with the utmost care and, and must seek to make every attempt to avoid a, a wrongful sanction. However, the consequences for a wrongful failure to sanction are equally serious for the student victim as a high number of student victims transfer schools or drop out of school entirely to avoid the accused student when the accused student remains on campus. So the evidentiary standard should reflect these equal stakes in the proceeding and, um, and, is, and the preponderance standard is the only one that really does, it does reflect these equal stakes. So for all of these reasons, the preponderance standard is the only acceptable standard for a civil rights proceeding under Title IX. Thank you. Perfect time. <laughs> okay. Um, OK, so I also want to extend my thanks. Um, it is always fun to be here. I confess that I still get accused of my University of Chicago background when I engage in debate with some of my colleagues. Um, I want to make. Um, uh, I, I basically agree with everything Nancy said. I want to make three points, and I suspect I'll only have time to make two, but um, I'll lay out the three up front. Um, the first is that I actually think that most of the resistance to the preponderance standard is actually resistance to the idea of seeing this as discrimination, and I think the reason people don't see this as discrimination is actually people aren't really very sure that women are always hurt by the underlying activity. And if it's not hurt, if she's not hurt, then it's not discrimination. We don't need the lesser standard of proof. My second point is, um, in part because we don't see women as all that hurt by this. Um, a lot of people aren't very concerned by false negatives. People are much more concerned by false positive, a man um, being punished for something that maybe he didn't do. And my third point um, is for all of those who um, who insist on higher standards of proof or just traditional criminal law safeguards. I think it's essential that in this area we recognize that when you put a victim of sexual violence or, um, or other intimate crimes through the criminal law process, you impose on her a kind of burden that is unique and incredibly arduous. So there is a tremendous cost on the victim if you afford the process that the criminal law usually affords to defend. Okay, so first point, just like people don't really see this as discrimination, I want to make by way of analogy. Um, so a bunch of you probably remember about two years ago in Oklahoma, 
on a Saturday night on a fraternity bus where everyone was drunk. There were two men who were videotaped singing a song, and they used the N-word, and one of the lyrics was, you can hang him from a tree, but he'll never sign with me. Everyone agrees no African-American people on the bus. Um, everyone agrees everyone was drunk. Someone took a movie. The movie was posted to YouTube Saturday night by Sunday afternoon. Um, the National Fraternity Organization had closed down the Oklahoma chapter. Um, men who had nothing to do with the bus were evicted. Like, they just closed down the house. Those, uh, everyone had to leave. Um, by Tuesday, the two men on the video had been expelled. Um, and the president of the university, who was former U.S. Senator David Bourne, simply explained they had created a hostile learning environment and they weren't welcome on campus. Some of you may not remember, because it received much, 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 much less press attention, though some of you may have been there about three years before that, um, on the old campus at Yale, another fraternity incident, another very drunken evening. Apparently, a bunch of men were walking around the quadrangle chanting, no means yes, yes means anal, I fuck dead women and fill them with my semen. Um, the Yale Women's Center got wind of this as it was happening and started posting things on social media like this is an incitement to sexual violence. It is statistically inevitable that um, some of the women who were in those dorms are, were themselves victims of sexual assault. Right. So this was targeted because there were clearly women in the dorms at Yale whereas there were no African Americans on the bus. Um, by press accounts that, that were there, the Yale campus was sort of a buzz right afterward, but um, the campus was sort of split about whether this was just a joke, how bad it was. Um, on Wednesday of that week, the Yale Daily News posted an editorial written by a woman editor-in-chief, both accusing the, the Women's Center of overreacting and the men for making a joke that was in bad taste. Um, in particular, she said this, feminists at Yale should remember that on a campus as progressive as ours, most of our battles have been won. All of us already agree on gender equality. Took Yale five months to do anything, and what they actually did to the men as a form of punishment, we don't know, because they didn't release it in order to protect their privacy. The National uh, Fraternity Organization was asked to suspend the fraternity and said no, saying, we've corrected the situation, we suspended their pledging activities for six weeks. Clearly, the chanting was inappropriate and poor taste, but does it really want to five-year suspension. I don't want to defend the lack of process in Oklahoma. I don't want to say the Yale guys should have been expelled. I just want to point out that the rather radical difference in the way that those two incidents were treated suggests that there is very, very different popular reaction to the kind of underlying conduct. Okay? And if people don't, if, if people continue to see sexual assault and the idea of going forward when she says no as a joke, then it is no surprise that people are going to rise up and resist when a statute tries to hold individual men responsible for a behavior that people still see as a joke. Okay? That's the first point. The second point is because we're not necessarily sure that women are all that, that hurt by this conduct, we don't, a lot of people don't really have a problem with false negatives, right? Um, they're concerned about the false positives. But when we aren't worried about the false negatives, what the message that we're sending to all these women who are saying, I'm really, really uncomfortable going to school with this guy who couldn't keep his hands off me, right? It's really, really uncomfortable to have to eat lunch with a guy who just mauled me when I was drunk on the way home on Saturday night. And he's sitting next to me, and it makes me very uncomfortable to have to go to school here. What, what we say, if we accept all of those false negatives, is, sorry, <laughs> nothing we can do. You, you can't quite prove it enough, so you'll just have to live with it, right? If we don't see that as being harmful enough to her to warrant punishment of him. I think everyone in this debate has to recognize that if we do use the lower standard of proof, if we do use Poe, there are going to be false negatives and false positives. That's inevitable because these situations are just incredibly hard. There are no witnesses in 70% of these incidents. One or both parties is drunk. And I think as big a problem is we basically ask people to describe what happened in a language that they don't have. I invite any of you to think about how good you would be at describing your last sexual encounter, consensual or not. Right? I did this, and he did that, and then we talked or didn't, and then that felt good or didn't. I don't, right? How, how persuasive would you be if you had to do that? And then imagine someone standing up right after you talked and trying to tell a story that would undermine what you said. 
And then imagine yourself trying to be the tribunal, figuring out which between these bad stories is the right one, right? That's all really, really difficult. But that hardly means that the answer is to do nothing. That hardly means that the answer is just to say, well, sorry, we can't figure out what happened, so we'll have to go with the status quo. I think that the best response to the inevitable difficulty of figuring out what happens is to just be much more creative and flexible when it comes to punishment. Um, there's a bunch of stuff happening with regard to restorative justice. I think that it's perfectly appropriate to say things like, as a tribunal, we're really sure it happened and what happened is bad, he gets expelled, right? We're not really sure what happened, right? It's uncomfortable. The parties are clearly upset, right? She's, she, she was injured in some way. She's clearly presenting as injured. We're not exactly sure what happened. He has to move dorms. He has to drop out of this course. Is that costless for him? No. It's a tremendous pain in the neck. Is it costly in terms of some financial stuff? Yeah, probably. Is it life-ending? Is it life-shattering? No. Without forcing, without forcing men to take some responsibility right, for this action which continues to impose all sorts of real costs on women, we accept the status quo. And the status quo sends the message to women that there's nothing we can do about this conduct. Um, I'm about to get the stop. Oh, I've got one minute. Okay. So, um, so my last point. Um, and I made um, handouts for everybody because I knew I wasn't going to get to it. Um, uh, but if you don't get my handout, you can at least Google it. I invite you to read the victim impact statement of the Stanford uh, rape victim last spring, right? And everyone talked about how bad it was because the guy got no, um, got five months in jail or something. But um, a tremendous amount of that impact statement was about how the process itself killed her. How absolutely appropriate criminal law process, pointed questions on cross-examination, him stepping up and denying the truth of what she said, him saying something else about what she liked and didn't like sexually. She remembered nothing from that assault, right? The process of going through all that publicly, which everybody has to do if you're a victim and you're using criminal law safeguards, is incredibly painful. And so if we say we need those higher standards of proof to in order to protect um, the accused, we are imposing a tremendous cost on the victims as well. Okay. Great. So um, this, uh, this is a gender issue, but there are also instances in which uh, it is not a male assailant uh, and female victim. So I'll try to speak about this in gender-neutral terms, use the whiteboard, and imagine one individual, Adrian, and another individual, Jesse. Uh, and basically what's going, Adrian inserts an object into Jesse, right. and the question is, uh, did Jesse consent to the insertion? Uh, and uh, we have two who are arguing that Jesse should have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence uh, that Jesse did not consent to the insertion, uh, and, and perhaps the view that uh, Jesse should have to prove by something more than a preponderance of the evidence uh, that Jesse did not consent to the insertion. Um, now, this strikes me as a non-expert on the subject as a surprising way to frame the debate. Uh, so first, just as a formal matter, who do we think would have uh, the burden of proof? Well, if we think of consent as an affirmative defense, uh, and that is one view of consent in the law of battery, though not a, a uniform view, then we would think it would be upon Adrian uh, to prove that Jesse consented rather than on Jesse to prove that Jesse did not consent. Then, from a symbolic perspective, symbolic, I think, um, perhaps belittles the argument, a discursive perspective. So, the logical equivalent of saying that uh, we presume consent, right? Uh, the logical equivalent of saying that Jesse has the, the burden is to presume consent, right? So, on a college campus, we presume that others can insert objects into you unless you can show that you did not consent to that insertion. And that seems to me inconsistent with uh, an academic community or a free society built upon principles of self-ownership and bodily integrity. 
right? The, the presumption should be uh, that you do not uh, consent to the insertion of objects into you, uh, that you have ownership of your body uh, until proven otherwise, until you convey that ownership uh, temporarily or permanently to another person. So third, there's, and now we're getting into the, the uh, meat of racist soliloquitur. So error cost minimization. And there's both an ex-post and ex-ante aspect to this. So, ex-post, uh, there are error costs of saying that uh, Adrian uh, did not have consent when Adrian, in fact, did have consent, right? There are error costs uh, of uh, false negatives as well. From an ex-post perspective, the error costs seem about even, right? Um, on the one hand, Adrian may be excluded from an academic community, even though Adrian did nothing wrong. On the other hand, Jesse may be excluded from an academic community because Jesse doesn't want to see Adrian in Jesse's dorm. Uh, moreover, Adrian, uh, if we have a false negative, may reoffend, right? So there may be a Sydney in addition to Jesse uh, here. So this seems uh, ex post, I'm not sure. Uh, ex ante, Allocating the burden to Adrian will mean that there are some sex acts that do not occur that would be wanted, right? So, and that counts in the social welfare calculus, right? The pleasure that Adrian and Jesse would get from the sex act that doesn't occur. But it seems that from an ex-ante perspective, uh, we are much happier to prevent some sex acts uh, that uh, Jesse does not consent to if that means that there are also some sex acts that both parties would consent to that do not occur, right? just because of the chilling effect. So that seems like another reason to allocate the burden to Adrian. We've got um, sort of the probabilistic argument. So I presume that a $100 bill given to me uh, is not counterfeit because most $100 bills that I get, uh, unfortunately not as many as I would like, uh, are not counterfeit, right? So is this an argument for allocating the burden to Adrian or to Jesse? I'm not sure, right? I think most sex acts on college campuses are consensual, but in most instances in which Jesse says that the sex act was not consensual, my guess is uh, it was not consensual, but I don't know. I don't have evidence. And then finally, the question is, who's going to be better at proving the requisite element? Adrian, proving a positive uh, that Jesse consented, uh, or Jesse proving a negative that uh, uh, Jesse did not consent. Well, proving a negative is really hard. Um, I would think that this would be a reason to allocate the burden to Adrian. Uh, and I would suggest uh, that proving consent in the real world is actually pretty easy, right? So the organizers of this event wanted to know that I consented to being recorded, so they gave me a sheet of paper and I signed it, right? If I, on a university campus, want to ask you a bunch of questions about your views on tax policy, I need you to write down that you consent. And then the standard of proof doesn't really matter, right? Because we have written evidence, and maybe there are a few cases that go to handwriting experts, but for the most part, there's consensus about what happens. So I would suggest that we could just use this same mechanism to not entirely get rid of the problem, but minimize the problem in the campus sex uh, context, right? Uh, people carry around protection, right? We should have a norm of legal protection, right? You take out a pen, you write a contract, you have sex, right? In, in, in one way, I mean, we, we laugh, but um, in so far, if we think about the, the degree to which a condom interferes with the pleasure that both parties derive from a sex act and a contract, uh, uh, how much that interferes? Well, the contract interferes less. If you forget the contract, <laughs> forget the contract you, can, uh, you can just create it. Like, much harder to produce a condom in a dorm room. Right? And, uh, we, I mean, we could have a norm that without the contract, uh, consent is just invalid, right? Something like a statute of frauds, right? So to convey ownership over a piece of land, you need a contract. Verbal consent doesn't do it, much less implicit consent. Right? We could say, well, to convey ownership uh, of a body, you need a written contract as well. Right? If the consequences of a contract, if the contract will take more than a year to carry out, you need it to be written down in the state of Illinois. Well, the consequences of a sex act can take like 18 years uh, to carry out. So, so that, too, should require a contract. Now, this doesn't mean that every time two parties uh, have sex on a college campus and they don't have a contract, someone's going to go before 
the ad board or uh, whatever the college calls it, right? Because it's only going to be instances in which Jesse uh, accuses Adrian of not having consent that the contract becomes relevant. But this seems to me an eminently solvable problem. There's the practical question of, oh, Adrian now has a sheet of paper. Uh, so Adrian can perhaps blackmail Jesse and say, look, I have proof that you had sex with me. But that's, I mean, we're good lawyers. We're transaction cost engineers. We can come up with a pretty good way to deal with that. We can just include a second clause in the contract. Right? Adrian will insert object into Jesse. And if either party discloses the existence of the contract, then penalties fall. Right? So the contract will remain secret uh, unless... Uh, Jesse brings Adrian to the ad board, in which case Adrian uh, can bring the contract, uh, can bring the contract up. Right? You don't even need to keep it in your pocket, right? You could just take a picture of it on your iPhone uh, and then have documentary evidence. Um, so this seems to me pretty simple. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, this will not get rid of the problem. Uh, there will still be uh, sex acts that lead to accusations, uh, and the parties don't have a contract. Um, I would say, under those circumstances, Adrian should be liable. There will be uh, some uh, transition costs, right? but ultimately, I think we'll be moving toward a better norm. Um, and I think the barriers to this are really cognitive uh, and cultural, uh, but not all that binding. So when I talk to friends about this, uh, who are mostly straight men in their early 30s who have been on college campuses re uh, recently, they don't find this super objectionable. Right? They think this is a relatively reasonable way of going about, uh, going about the practice. Right? Now, they're mostly lawyers, so they're more familiar with contracts, but we're all quite familiar with contracts from ordinary life. Uh, so I would suggest uh, that we begin to move in that direction uh, and, and predict that we ultimately will, because my sense is that the people living on college campuses are actually much more open to this idea uh, than society as a large might seem to be. Thank you. And Richard, I've had to shave a little bit off both of you because we started later and tried a little math. So um, just follow Whatever it is, I, um, I think I'm on the same side as Daniel on this issue, but after his speech, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me, in effect, start again with Title IX and see the way in which it goes. The characterization that Nancy gave of it is it's a statute which is designed to redress various forms of inequalities of power with sexual arrangements. And I don't read it that way at all. Uh, the statute suffers from the great vice of most legislation, which is it's all in the passive voice, when it says no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination in any educational program activity receiving financial assistance. I agree it's in the passive voice, but I think in effect that the clear... Uh, hidden down there is by the university itself, not by any particular person in the university as a private party. And so I think that the constant move to assume that universities are now uh, in a position in which they have to answer for by creating procedural mechanisms to deal with individual cases of claimed sexual assault within campus is a rather substantial, inaccurate, and overbroad reading of the statute. Uh, the thought that somehow or other this comes to light only in the year 2011 when the Dear Colleague letter reads leads me to believe that this is in fact the correct interpretation and that the matter should not be covered by Title IX at all. That does not mean that it should not be covered. Well, generally speaking, suppose you're a university administrator and you have to cover these kinds of issues. Clearly, you cannot run a university where these kinds of allegations are going to be made and just wash your hands of it. What you'd like to do is to get some kind of independent judgment about the way in which you think that people ought to proceed. Uh, now, before we had the Dear Colleague letter, uh, we did have a whole variety and range of procedures that have taken place. And contrary to what Nancy and Kathy thinks, there is not one correct solution. In fact, most of the universities, when forced to figure out exactly how they were to handle this question, decided, well, it's not a criminal proceeding. But we do think the impacts have some differential consequence. So we're going to split the difference between the uh, burden of proof by a preponderance of evidence and that by beyond a reasonable doubt and require clear and convincing evidence. 
And so my own set of priors are that people who run these universities are taking flack from everybody on both sides of the issues. If you see a relatively widespread consensus in these universities as to how their governance ought to take place, I think it's a kind of a form of external overconfidence, perhaps bordering on arrogance, to say, you know, every major university in the world has done it in this particular way, but I'm a Title IX expert, and I think that every one of them is wrong, and I'm going to use the power of the state in order to get them to move to another kind of position. I take these things very seriously. Um, my own view about universities is that they are at this point reasonably well represented on both sides. Uh, there may be certainly physical differences that matter, uh, but if you're looking at student populations, the mix of general counsels, many of which are women, uh, sexual control offices of one kind or another, also many of them female and so forth, I do not see any structural imbalance in these things, and so I tend to credit situations and believe that Title IX, when read in the way it does, is irrelevant. Uh, the next question is, if in fact we are going to say it's irrelevant, there's nothing about Title IX which dictates the procedure. This is not a statutory requirement. This is essentially an administrative ad hoc interpretation. And in dealing with this, I think it's vitally important that one understand the burden of proof issue in context of every other issue that starts to be raised in these cases. And the first thing that you always have to do is to worry about the composition of the panel. I've been involved in a couple of these cases, and I can't even talk about where or who's involved, uh, but it's quite clear that the panels involved are people who are convinced that Title IX is a very important kind of situation, and their institutional bias is often going to be in favor of the victim rather than in favor of the person who is accused as the perpetrator. And so, in fact, if you've got an institutional bias built into the selection of these programs, I think it's important. And so, you know, if you wanted to go to a place which has been under attack for this, for example, Yale uh, College and so forth, which I've certainly taken on in print for some of the things that it has done, uh, you sort of ask yourself the following simple-minded question. How many members of the Yale faculty um, are Republicans? In any sharp shot, and, you know, you come up with a number between 1% and 2% if what you do is you actually measure campaign contributions to the two parties. So now what you do is you have a faculty committee and a student committee drawn from these populations, and you put them in charge of the situation. I think that that's a tilt. And I think it's inescapable that it's a tilt. Because people who think that Title IX is exceedingly important are, I think, going to be more eager to find violations of Title IX than people who think that this thing ought to be resolved sensibly by internal university procedures wholly apart from Title IX. But then you start looking at other kinds of questions. What are the procedures? One of the things that's quite striking about this stuff has to do with cross-examination and how this is supposed to be uh, done. And uh, many years ago, I was asked to draft procedures uh, with a committee for the University of Chicago for dealing with questions of academic fraud, uh, which have also extremely powerful sanctions uh, when they are imposed. And what I found that the general sense throughout the institution had been to underestimate the importance of formal protections in the way in which you did with these cases, and that what we did was to put in a system in which those formal protections have gone. John Wigmore, when he talked about cross-examination, regarded it as a great engine of truth. If, in fact, you are going to lower the burden of proof so that it's a bare preponderance of evidence, then it seems to me to be every much as important uh, that you do have a vigorous system of cross-examination in order to allow the story on the other side to be exposed. I know it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be unpleasant both ways. I don't think that's a decisive feature. But what is striking about the Title IX directive in the Dear Colleague is it recommends against cross-examination. And what it says is we think that people should be allowed to submit questions to the board, which as I regard in many cases is slanted, and then they can decide which of them they want to use and which of them they don't. At which particular point it turns out to me that this is not cross-examination, that this becomes a charade. In fact, I regard this as sufficiently close, like the academic fraud cases, uh, to a kind of a conviction that I think, in effect, that the whole provision is unconstitutional as a violation of due process, uh, given all of the standard tests that we use under cases like Matthew and Eldridge to figure out, given the burden. Now, it's been said that the burdens here are equal. 
And that's just false. And let me explain why. Um, let's suppose it turns out that you're a woman, you bring a charge, or you think you've been assaulted, it's one of these drunk situations, and it turns out that you lose. You've got a lot of accommodations you can make. You don't have to move him into another class. You can ask to be moved into another class or to another dorm or go to another's place. And nobody is going to come after you and say, well, this is just absolutely terrible. You, in effect, now want the transfer, and you've been found guilty of a form of sexual assault by one of these panels. What do you think your chances are going to be in order to get yourself into somewhere else if you make a full and complete disclosure? Uh, you are going to be radioactive with respect to most campuses, and if it were made public that we are now admitting somebody who's been found guilty of sexual assault, which we believe correct, into our campus, all the women and all the other people on the campus could rise up as one in order to attack them. There are huge asymmetries, therefore, that follow from these things uh, because the taint of guilt is extremely important. Now, why is it that the criminal law, and I will end on this point to be in time, um, uh, has always used the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, given the fact that the error costs are very uh, high uh, for the innocent victim? I think the answer has to do with not the isolated case, but with the sequence of cases that can be brought. If you're an innocent person and you are convicted in this particular case, you're ruined and there's no chance that you could repair this particular damage by being found innocent in some future case. But let's suppose that you have somebody who's an assaulter and he gets off in one case. One of the things that we tend to know about sexual assault cases in most cases is that they're, you know, the Bill O'Reilly phenomenon. It's the Bill Cosby phenomenon. It's a pattern in practice. And as you start getting multiple cases, it's going to be very difficult, even with a high burden of proof, for a defendant to escape. Uh, so the asymmetries are really very, very profound because an innocent person who's convicted is toast. A guilty person who gets out this particular time is likely to be held responsible on some other occasion so that if you do this as a system-wide situation, you get better error minimization results if you move. So I think, in effect, first it is just a mistake for uh, the EEOC or for the Department of Education to intrude themselves into these fairs. The statute doesn't require it. I have to put this whole apparatus in is simply uh, just romancing the stone. I think, in effect, if you look at it, uh, the uh, larger institutional context of these hearings is already too heavily skewed. And I also think if you do the error cost analysis correctly, uh, contrary to what Nancy and what Kathy said, I don't think the stakes are asymmetrical. I think they're rather symmetrical. I think they're profoundly asymmetrical. And so I would hope that since this was done by the Obama administration in an executive order, that the word of Job would work. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And I hope that the Trump administration removes this particular situation and starts to rethink this question from scratch. Thank you. Okay, on that note, um, I think we have an opportunity for, let's say, three minutes each for each of you. Professor Kamenova, did you want to go first in responding? Um, sure, so I'll, I'll just, um, I'm going to respond from, again, from the Title IX sort of doctrinal perspective. Um, so first, with regard to the system of consent and the burden of proof, um, you know, the, the standard under Title IX is actually not consent. It's welcomeness. So, so that's one thing that I would just like to put on the table as something for you all to think about is how does, when the standard, when the substantive standard is welcomeness as opposed to consent, how does that affect the, the sort of contracting situation? It's much more, the welcomeness standard is much more flexible, much more totality of the circumstances, less of a light switch the way that consent is. So, um, so I'd actually be most interested in hearing Professor Hemmel's um, thoughts on, on how that affects his structure. Um, with regard to Professor Epstein's um, comments, so I just want to make a couple of, of remarks, again, about Title IX. So, so yes, Title IX does put liability on the university. It requires the university to not engage in sex discrimination against students. But what that means in the sexual violence context, in the peer sexual violence context, is that the university is not allowed to 
just ignore sexual violence that's happening among peers at the institution within, you know, between two students because the student who is victimized will have a lesser and unequal educational experience as a result of the trauma of having been sexually victimized while they're in school. And so, so the way that Title IX works is that the university will be held liable if the university has not structured its proceedings to, to deal with and address sexual violence cases, right? So, so what we're talking about is at the first tier, at what the university is supposed to do. The preponderance of the evidence standard is about what the university needs to do. But the university is doing that essentially to show the enforcers of Title IX, who are the courts or the Department of Education, um, that they have undertaken to address this violence and that they are protecting all of the rights of all of their students. And so, so, so to say that Title IX does not is only about what universities do or that Title IX puts liability on the university is a, a bit of a misnomer because the university has to show that it has addressed this violence in order to not be liable under Title IX. Um, and, and that relates to another point which um, Professor Epstein made about clear and convincing evidence. So it is actually not true that most schools chose clear and convincing evidence. The vast majority of colleges and universities well before the 2011 Dear Colleague letter chose the preponderance of the evidence standard um, because they recognized that that was the standard that would allow them to protect the rights of all of their students as equally as possible. And this is across the board, not just in sexual violence cases. This is in all, um, all student misconduct cases. And so... Um, so I'll, I will leave it there, but, um, but I just want to make sure that you understand from a doctrinal perspective that, um, that how Title IX works. Thank you. Okay. okay. Uh, four points, I think. Uh, the first one with regard to consent. So I love the idea. Um, most of us, when we have put that in something like that in print, have gotten laughed at a lot. Um, but the bigger problem, I think, is actually when it comes to many sexual encounters, it's not binary, right? There's yes to this, not to that. Like, are we getting out our iPhone every two seconds and saying yes to this move? No. I mean, I, I think if you, I think what people are concerned about is that there is a certain amount of um, change, right? That there, that there is a certain amount of yes, no, give and take, change, evolution to the sexual act that makes it very, very difficult to encapsulate it in a binary contract. Um, with regard to norm shift, so so I um, and and I think this mostly goes uh, to Richard's point. I find this an incredibly frustrating catch-22, and it comes up in this subject all the time. So for 30 years, feminists have been saying, look, this is not a problem of the crazy, weirdo, serial rapist. This is a cultural problem of male entitlement to sex, right? It's just that men think they can take it if they want to, and they're not very interested in anything she has to say. And it's not any individual man's fault. It's a much bigger cultural norm fault, right? And so when uh, campaigns like this rise up to try and deal in a comprehensive Comprehensive way with that big norm problem um, by using something like a post standard, which is going to identify many, many more instances of this. The response back is, oh my God, you can't do that because you're ruining the guy's life. And we're saying, no, because it's not really him. It's a big cultural norm problem. And they say, no, because you're calling him Bill Cosby and you're ruining his life. right? But the whole point of 
a, a campaign like this is to say this right we're, we're going to impose some punishments on some people we're going to make them switch dorms and classes but we don't want to brand them that's the last thing that the campaign wants to do most of the women who are victims don't want to brand the guy most of the women who are victims understand the cultural norms that are working against them and say I want something done but I don't want to throw this guy in jail I don't want to punish him too much I understand right the sort of con con complicated gender dynamics that have resulted in this problem. Um, okay. Uh, and just one other point about cross-examination, and I suspect we will never um, come to agreement on this, but it seems to me that Professor Epstein did, said, two, said some inconsistent things. You like the people who are in the tribunals, they're well-meaning people, they care about Title IX. No, I don't but, like them. Oh, you don't? Oh, I'm sorry. Not too much about Title IX. Oh, okay. So, so, all right, so I misheard you. I just want to suggest this with regard to cross-examination. I actually do think the people who are on the tribunals have a very hard job. Most of them absolutely do want to figure out what happened, and it's not that easy. They can ask the questions, right? The, the, the lack of cross, the, the desire not to have cross-examination is all about keeping very rigorous, excellent defense attorneys from totally cross-examining the heck out of a victim who is very uncertain and unclear and scared and vulnerable, right? But tribunals who really want, members of tribunals who really want to get at the truth can actually ask questions in a far less confrontational way, in a manner, right? There are people other than lawyers who are concerned about truth sometimes, and they don't always use cross-examination to get at it, right? They use very different kinds of techniques, and college tribunals, unlike criminal courtrooms, are allowed to do that. Okay, so thank you, and I'm sorry to get That's off, fine. and I can tell pens are writing and busy to respond. The two of you are going to not be able to respond because... What? Sex So I wanted for there to be a chance for questions, and not much time left. It seems most important. So should I call people? Yes, yes you call people. Yeah, or I'll just answer. <laughs> <laughs> She's drunk enough, the contract's not valid. But that's my, but my conversation is that you're standing higher because the agent has a contract. My second concern is for Jesse, who either like consents to some acts or consents and then changes his or her mind. And that, like, something you think you're going to want when you're talking about it in the living room may not be the same thing 20 minutes later when you're actually with a person. And I'm really concerned that it would make those two Jesse's a lot harder for them to actually like, make a case that has the agreement. So, keep your answers real quick. <laughs> Great points. Um, I uh, think that the number of cases in which Jesse drunkenly signs the contract uh, but didn't really mean it will be a small fraction of the total sum of cases. And in most instances, uh, um, that what we write on a piece of paper actually does reflect. I disagree. Our, but our these are, most of these are drunken encounters... God knows what the contract said, but if these are not irrevocable arrangements. This is not a conveyance of land, and if the consent changes, that agreement would be weakly presumptive at best, and you'd be in the super. You, uh, one, but one can argue. It's a lot harder for to make her pace because in the current world, like we don't know if it's a sheet. Like, like, the contract world, so, so there, there's nothing in our world that prevents Adrian and Jesse from, from writing the contract and from producing it as evidence. If we are as concerned about the composition of these uh, committees as Professor Epstein is, uh, then I would suggest to Adrian, uh, you, should get, uh, you should get documentary evidence uh, of consent. And I think that one benefit of uh, this shift um, would be, uh, it would be, um, uh, consistent with what I think has been a normative shift on college campuses to Antioch rules. Uh, so the the instance, so there aren't that many colleges that have instituted Antioch rules, but I think there are a lot of social groups that have instituted Antioch rules, right, where every sex act requires verbal consent. Uh, one could shift to every sex act requires written consent. But I think in social groups, 
that that rely on Antioch rules, uh, the instances of non-consensual sex are very, very low. And this isn't, I'm not saying that Title IX requires Antioch rules or that Title IX requires a shift in the burden uh, of proof. What I'm saying is I think there is market demand on campuses uh, for Antioch rules, either verbal or written. I think written works better because there's uh, proof ex post and that it would be a good thing, perhaps not legally required, uh, but a good thing for a college that wants to attract young, liberally minded students uh, to adopt these uh, okay. these rules. And another question. No, because my claim is not that Title IX requires this, right? My claim is that the University of Chicago should adopt a rule uh, where the burden of proof is upon the inserter rather than the insertee, right? That is not uh, the university. There's certainly uh, no argument, I think, that Title IX prevents the University of Chicago from doing that, right? Uh, I think Adrian would have a very, very weak argument that uh, the University of Chicago was violating Title IX. No, I disagree with that. Um, suppose you're talking about people over the age of 21, off campus, living together, or dating in some sense. Why the university should have any responsibility for things that take place off its premises, outside of its class, and unconnected with its activities? Hell, I mean, as a parent with a teenager, it was hard enough to keep people under control. But I think that this is just wildly over-intrusive in the way in which grown adults should be able to order their own lives. So if, if I can disagree with, with that um, and, and also add a little bit about welcomeness. You know, I, I actually think that welcomeness could, that the welcomeness standard could include Professor Hemmel's um, structure, right? Because the welcomeness standard is a totality of the circumstances standard, it would include, you know, a document like a contract as one piece of evidence that you're considering in the totality of the circumstances. I think it's the problem is that that consent is a light switch, right? And and and. And your question gets at that at that problem, right? Because because if the contract is the only evidence that you're dealing with, because it's a light switch, you either consented or you didn't, um, then that's a problem, right? That's that's going to lead to potentially unintended consequences. But if you have if if you're following welcomeness as you should be um, under Title IX, and you're using a totality of the circumstances approach, then you can include not only evidence of the contract, but evidence that the person who signed the contract that seems to indicate that the that the person consented, um, in fact, said to to Adrian two hours before when that person was completely dead sober that that person did not want to have sex before marriage, right? You could, you could include all of that as, as in your totality of the circumstances determination of what Adrian knew about whether or not they, Adrian really did have, or, or whether Jesse was really welcoming of this conduct. This is a terrible idea. Right? Okay. May I answer? I mean, because I, I haven't. No, I mean, look, I mean, the consent standard <laughs> turns out to be more pro defendant than the welcomeness standard. And Nothing you, against you. We got one more question. Richard. Um, <laughs> The, issue, the concern I have about putting the burden of proof on the accused is the problem of counterclaims. Because uh, you talked a lot about penetration, and perhaps people took that to imagine that only one party would be penetrated in most of these sex acts, and therefore only that party could bring a claim. But in fact, uh, touching genitals would be a sexual assault without consent. So. Uh, if uh, it seems like you're empowering Adrian to say to Jesse, by the way, if you accuse me, I will accuse you. And then if the tribunal can't figure out what happened, it's, you know, it's one person said, the other person said, well, then they just convict us both. And this is, this is the sort of thing that happened with mandatory arrest laws in domestic violence. They, a lot of states adopted mandatory arrests, so the police would, would not use discretion. And then what happens is they wind up arresting both parties because the uh, the other party always says, "Oh well, but you know she hit me first, so they just arrest both." So I mean, I think one response would be to have sort of a hierarchy where 
insertion slash penetration is above touching, right? So uh, if Adrian says, if if Adrian says you didn't have permission to touch me, and Jesse says you didn't have permission to penetrate me, uh, then Jesse's claim trumps Adrian's. Right? Okay. We could also have. There's, there, there's some. There, there was some idea in criminal law of trying to achieve gender neutrality that I think that runs up against. Uh, well, well, so so I still haven't gendered it, uh, but I also think that if we explicitly gendered it and yeah. said uh, in cases where the man and the woman uh, both claim that there wasn't consent, that the woman's claim prevails we would have a pretty good argument that that passes intermediate scrutiny. Okay, but that's a very different argument. <laughs> Set of right. arguments than what you have up here. Well, uh, so, right. last word, since we're going to be out of time uh, in about 30 seconds, do either of our guests want to have a chance to... We have chance I'll to say, say something about welcomeness, mostly to make Professor Epstein happy. Um, I actually think welcomeness developed, so Nancy and I disagree about this. I think welcomeness developed in the context of sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, and I think it is somewhat unclear that the, that the Supreme Court would announce the same standard for sexual harassment in academic social situations. I think everyone would be well served by thinking about what standard we would want if welcomeness is. Um, so, so welcomeness is a standard that protects people in the workplace in a, in a situation in which it's perfectly appropriate for us to think sex shouldn't be here at all. Right? Most of the social situations in college campuses are different than that. I think we may need a different kind of standard. I'm not sure what it is, um, but I'm not sure that it's welcomeness. May I make my one sentence now? One sentence. One sentence. Welcomeness basically cannot coexist with the a preponderance of evidence. What it does is it makes consent no longer an absolute defense, and so therefore you're using a weak standard of proof with a very, very broad standard in favor of the plaintiff. This is a suicidal imbalance of power in the legal system. And on that note, we should end. <laughs> Thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.